1: Welcome to episode 13 of Chid Music, a podcast presented by Fangraphs. My name is Kevin Goldstein. I'm in DeKalb, Illinois. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we finally did it. We found a shipping company who would handle the co-host chair and ship it out of New York. And we have done so. And it lands in Tempe, Arizona, where, and he will get a plaque for this. He is the first two-time co-host of Chid Music. It's uh, the wonderful Eric Longenhagen. Eric, how are you?
0: I'm pretty good. Hanging in there, doing the starting to branch out and do some non-in house stuff, like remove from the vaccine and trying to reintegrate into the world with mixed success. How's
1: that going? I, we went. To, I, my wife and I walked into a store for the first time in over a year yesterday. Wow! Very <laughs> I exciting.
0: anywhere like that? We went to TJ Maxx. I bought socks. Oh man, I had. um I still haven't really been anywhere, like, store-wise. I walked into a music store the other day. That uh, counts. I've been to the... You know, I did go to the record store. I went to the to the Zia New and Used Record uh, store. That totally counts. So I guess I have been somewhere. But, yeah, I haven't really... It's been, like, me eating places, me finding different places to work that just aren't, like... Yeah. Me re- relocating from the office to the kitchen island to the couch. Like, those are the three work locations. Right. And yeah, to kind of getting out and just not being in the house so much. But unfortunately, as it comes time to like get out and do more stuff is the same time where the heat is starting to crank up here in Arizona. So it's like 100 again today. And mm-hmm. um, it's like, oh, yeah, I was out. I was out at 1 p.m. yesterday looking for Archie, who had definitely like wandered off in the middle of the day. To be clear and,
1: to the audience, Archie is a cat.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would never have a human child. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like he was hot and he was wherever he was and definitely didn't want to come home because he'd have to walk on like the street and the, the sidewalk that's been baking in the sun for a couple hours. And so he had to go haul his ass home. Um, so like random stuff like that is is shifting and changing the way it, it would in a normal year. But like, um, but yeah, I don't know if I have any weird, for sure we all have some sort of weird PTSD uh coming off of this or something like that i don't know how that's going to manifest um for me specifically none of that has like reared its ugly head as of yet um but i'm waiting for it and sensitive to it
1: yeah no it's 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 strange to it was very strange just to walk into a store. it's strange to be looking at schedules and thinking about driving up to beloit and seeing some uh midwest league or whatever it is high a central baseball um and actually be doing that kind of thing, uh, it's its still something I feel like I need to adjust to and think, like, I'm actually going to do this. Um, I know you have a lot more baseball, a lot more um, convenient for you, and, you, and you're you going to stuff. It's just, it's strange to think about at this point.
0: Yeah, the it's definitely different, the stuff. Like, I want to go see Scherzer tomorrow night, right? Like, going to a big league stadium and being around thousands of other people definitely has its own weird specific vibe. But like going to the backfields where it's you yeah and it's like me and Bill Mitchell and like four scouts if that right now for the at the beginning of extended spring training games. It's like that's not that's no big deal. Um and yeah, it's been interesting to like so uh my bike got stolen over the weekend. <laughs> oh shit. This is the second time in my life that my bike's been stolen. I it was lifted uh I had a brown dino comp with purple lettering when I was like a an adolescent that got stolen and I felt really horribly violated when it was <laughs> stolen when I was a kid. I went to uh went to a middle school volleyball game. I was also in middle school to be to be clear, it was a middle school girls volleyball game because like hey, if Rech- Rachel Hess sees me at the game, maybe she'll be like, "Oh, Eric came to my game. <laughs> I maybe should she'll go to the big dance." Yeah, I should scare quotes date him. Uh <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I left the volleyball game and my bike was gone and I f- just felt my heart sink. And uh, I was like a mile away from my house and I had to call my parents from a payphone because it was 2002 or something like that. And I didn't have a cell phone yet. And um, and yeah, I went to the police and filed a report and all that stuff. And then this time I went to this place, it's a coffee shop and cafe. I went and I sat and I, I did, a, I don't know. The a little tiny bit of work. I was in there for maybe forty five minutes while I ate a sandwich and had a coffee, and my bike got stolen. Uh, I came out and it was gone, and it was a Sunday, and I didn't want to involve the police in this because like this just doesn't go well for me. Like I just don't drive with them. They're not, I.
1: It's a stolen bike, and you're in a metropolitan area. I yeah, mean, it's gonna care. be like it's gonna become the big Lebowski, and like, do you got well, any leads? <laughs>
0: You know, my car was in a parked hit and run several months ago. And like, I never got so much as a follow-up call on that. So right. not even when we're like, Hey, look, sorry. We looked at the security camera footage from the nearby places. And we can't tell like a license plate from the car that hit are sorry, dude. Like nothing like that. They just didn't respond. So I was just like, fuck this. Um, And I drove around and did some like, I you basically ran PI errands work. while I looked for my bike. <laughs> 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 I drove around pissed in my car. Uh, and yes, yeah, so like this is like what it's been like. I went the one time I went somewhere like to sit and do work in a place, a coffee shop outside, like I got punished by uh, my bike getting stolen. It's like the most eventful thing that's happened to me over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> so uh, we're going to at some point we'll talk about baseball. Um,
1: we have lots of little bullet points to address. Our special guest this week will be Alex Coffey, the athletics beat writer for The Athletic. Uh, who's going to help explain what the hell is going on with Oakland and their potential new ballparks, uh, both in Oakland and places beyond. Uh, we'll get into your emails. We'll talk about our musical guest, Couch Flambeau. Uh, we'll catch up with Eric. We'll have a moment of culture, and we'll be out. You want to talk about baseball, Eric? Yeah. Let's start with the big news. We are recording this on Thursday. It's currently one fifty one p.m. Central Time, uh, and the story of the day is... Uh, the Seattle Mariners, which is not something you get to say all the time, um, and they pulled the trigger, called up some some couple top prospects and Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert. Um, let's start with 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 Kelnick. Obviously, this is a big hype guy. Obviously, this is uh, you know an elite prospect, um, you know, ranking in in, in top five in, in baseball. And that said, it, it's always you know you have to be a little a, a little bit uh you know cautious like it's not like he chances are not good he's going to come in and crush it immediately um you know he there are some holes in this game there's a little swing and miss in this game um he's not the perfect player but he's really really good and he's going to be really really good but expecting some sort of you know 1000 ops in may i think is 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 it feels like that's what people are expecting it's not necessarily going to happen
0: yeah and he he is where he is on our list, which is largely my list, just because of the timeline of you like mm-hmm. onboarding and stuff. But like he is where he is because of the degree of confidence, not necessarily because of the ceiling. Like we just have him 60'd the same as we do like a dozen or so players right behind him, mm-hmm. which is like, hey, we think this guy is an all star. But I don't think he's going to be like Acuna or anything like that. There's a there's a pretty substantial gap between the Vladdy Guerrero, Tatis, Acuna, Otani type of top of list talents. And then someone like this, who's corner bat, maybe a DH at some point. Um,
1: and, I, and, I, and I don't think it's the same hit tool. Like, he's got real power. He's very good. I'm not saying it's a substandard bat, but, you know, all those guys you reeled off are, are all you know, floor 60 bats. I, I This feels like more of a 55 bat to me. Like, you know, like it's going to be, I think peak is going to be like 280, 290 with 30, but not 320, 330.
0: I think that's fair. I think that there's Tatis would be the exception of the guys that I listed. Like there was swing and miss there too. Yeah. But, um, but obviously like with Kellnick, I think if you look at him physically, And the way things work mechanically, there's a lot of margin for error there. Like, he is just artificially short to the baseball in a way that I think will enable him to deal with velocity on the inner half and, like, really get on top of those fastballs at the top of the zone that you see a ton now. Um, And so, yeah, I think that you're right. I don't know where the. I don't know what else we can do to try to set expectations properly for people like the hype train is just it's not driven by us right I it's, think it's, it's...
1: and it's not just Kellnick it, it just feels like it, it, this is where and it's, I think it's been a development really over the last decade and and partially people like you and me are to blame for it because people get excited about prospect writing but all of a sudden like every guy becomes
0: the savior as opposed to just a really good player but where's that permeating from I it doesn't you don't read our report and go oh my god like this guy's unbelievable. Like, Is it just the I, people, number next to his name on the list?
1: I think people just get super excited about the future. And and uh, I'll give you an, an, an example that got ugly, unfortunately. Um, so I had a chat on Monday at Fangraphs. Okay. Um, and I had, I don't know, I want to say 50 questions that were just like, um, you know, player X is 12 for 20. When's he going to get called up? When's he going to get promoted? When's, when do you think he'll be in the big leagues? And, and I just kept responding calm down and it pissed a lot of people off and whatever. But you know my point was like answering this question in any sort of way, in any sort of serious way is actually a disservice to the, to the reader. Like to, to sit there and act like four games moves any sort of needle whatsoever, I think is a big mistake. I think it's a, it's a situation where like I don't know. I, can we get can we wait six weeks instead of six days before we start asking these questions and i think people just get so excited about prospect and so excited about the future and it's the same thing you know i've talked to i don't play fancy baseball but i you can tell by the way yeah the questions get asked and when you talk to people who play fancy baseball there's always i i've heard from people say like there's this one guy and he's just always acquiring prospects and he never has a good team because he's always acquiring prospects they just get so excited about these guys and and everyone wants to have, you know have their guy be the next generational talent, be the next, you know, Acuna or Soto or, or or Vladdy or whatever. And most of these guys that we think are good are going to be pretty good. And, and generational talents come—the words right there—they're they're, they're generational. Um, they're not all going to be that.
0: I think um, you're absolutely right. I would struggle to thread this needle too. Where it's tough. Fangraphs readers compared to the readers at your average baseball website are probably above average in their understanding of, of some of the concepts. That, I, would, I would even say way above average, yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but, um, but like, yeah, it is, I don't want to say it's frustrating, but it does seem like, yeah, the foundation of people's thought and expectations are driven by this thing, whether it's it's almost always just gambling related, right? Like fantasy baseball and, you know, whether you're opening a pack of baseball cards or playing fantasy baseball, like you're basically gambling. You open a pack mm-hmm. of baseball cards is like a scratch-off lotto ticket, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, people's interest in what we're doing is mostly driven by that. Uh, and so they're always seeing it through that lens. And for whatever reason, no matter how many times an example occurs organically that proves patience and like there needs to be a timeline for improved understanding. Think about Reese Hoskins. Reese Hoskins comes up in 2017 and like literally I bet there are headlines on huge websites that say like Reese Hoskins, the start of Reese Hoskins career is like the greatest that there's ever been. Like there's no month long or two month long stretch in which a hitter has ever been this dominant. And since then, he's just kind of been okay. He's he's steadily been okay since then. Um, not a superstar, just like a slightly above average player because he can really hit and has zero defensive value. Um, and so that was, that was two months of a guy at the big league level, absolutely crushing it. And even that wasn't really telling. And, like, Dominic Brown is another one where the tools were the tools and the body was the body. And he did nothing but perform all the way through the minors. Lewis Brinson, too. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it just went away. And, like, if four years of performance ultimately wasn't enough of an indicator to show that this guy was going to be successful, and it jived perfectly with the visual evaluation and was like – there's there was zero reason not to be totally excited about Dominic Brown, and then he right. goes out and has a, a May where he hits like thirteen or fourteen bombs in a month and makes an All Star team, and then he's basically terrible at, since then. Like, and that was it. Like, there's just no way of knowing all the time. Like, four like a week's worth of games in the minor leagues, especially coming off of the weird season we're coming off of, shouldn't tell it's, it doesn't tell us anything really. Right, and there's a difference between. You and I go into the ballpark or anyone going to the ballpark and going, all right, wow, look at, you know, pitcher X has a new secondary pitch and is throwing four miles an hour harder. The small sample caveats don't apply as strongly to that. Certainly the context of the look, you know, you want to go, look, this guy hasn't pitched regularly in a year and a half. Cody Poteet's throwing two miles an hour harder. Is he going to do that all year if he has to pitch every fifth day? Like, we don't know that stuff yet either but i'm definitely more inclined to believe some stuff than i am other things and definitely a guy performing for a week just has zero, zero weight and it's bizarre to me that uh you know the average reader hasn't experienced this dynamic enough to just know on their own not to care about this every year we're explaining to people hey
1: no God, dude damn. it's
0: like relax like right
1: i mean trevor howard's a great i mean trevor howard's a guy you're very familiar with he went to college at arizona state uh in in lovely tempe um you know third round pick last year as as kind of an offensive oriented second baseman uh walks power and some swing and miss right um yeah he's at low a he's got six home runs in seven games and all of a sudden it's like when is this guy going to be hit behind Aaron judge you're like well you know look he's 22 he's in low a he should be killing it you know 22 year old from a huge program should be killing it in low A, and he's killing it. He's he's doing what he should be doing. It's great. It's much better than him having zero home runs, and it's something to you know keep an eye on certainly. But you know, it, it just pump the brakes a little, folks. It's it's okay. But get back to to, to Um, like what what do you think is a realistic expectation for this year? If I said eight hundred OPS over under,
0: so that would be. Oh, three, I think that's, that's a good that's, place to. Put it. Yeah,
1: that's like, you know, I'm just calling that, let's call that 330 on base, 470 slugging. I'll
0: take the over. Um, well, yeah, I do think at some point during the course of the year that we're going to see real repercussions as far as the pitching quality across the league. Like um, Yes. That over the course of the season, we will continue to see injuries mount in a way that dilutes the pitching to what this guy to more of what this guy was going to see at AAA anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's going to be an adjustment period for big league pitching initially. It wouldn't surprise me if he comes out of the gate hot and then teams start to figure out what his bugaboo is and then start to exploit that. And then it'll be on him to make adjustments in the back half of the season. So I think that you have the the general over-under put in a healthy spot where it's tough for me to decide if I would take the over or the under. I think that um, yeah, that's about right. I guess I would take slightly slightly under just because of how rare it is for guys to come up and just crush it immediately. Yeah, it's tough. Unless they are an elite, elite player. And even then, it's not always the case. Like Trout and like, you know, I'm certainly in a Phillies state of mind where it's like, yeah, Chase Utley's initial big league foray was not good either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was 26. So Uh, big league pitching is, is really good. Oh, that's the sky director calling me. Uh, Nice. You want to take that? Uh, (laughs) yeah, I do actually, but, um, (laughs) I actually need to take that. But, um, but yeah, like he's going to be, he's going to be quite good. I definitely think he's an all-star caliber player. Um, I have a high degree of confidence in the power playing in games because of the way, I think the hit tool will work. Like I do think, yeah, he's going to strike out some, sure. But this guy's more or less been the most polished hitter his age since he was fifteen years old, mm-hmm. uh, and did that coming from a freezing cold weather climate where it's just not typical of of hitters like this to to come from. So um, right. So yeah, I'm I'm in. What about Gilbert? What do you think Logan Gilbert's going to do? He yeah. uh, So so Logan Gilbert's
1: starting tonight um, at home against the Indians. Uh, This guy has absolutely cruised through the minor leagues uh, without a hiccup. Uh, Five innings of one run ball and his his one AAA start this year. Um, This is one of my best amateur whiffs. So I can tell you that story real quick. Um, I was in like running around Florida, like Central Florida, seeing a bunch of dudes. and toward the end i flipped over it was like a 90-minute drive to stetson to see logan gilbert and um i actually talked to, to brendan about this and because um, he said like he talked to someone in seattle who said like if you saw him early it was bad and if you saw him late it was good i saw him kind of in the middle and like honestly i think his average fastball below that day was 89 i i 90s were 90s and, and above were rare um he had a good slider that I thought was kind of soft in terms of below, but had good movement. Um, the body, he was big, but it was kind of, I don't know, like like fleshy and bulky as opposed to just big and strong. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, he was softer.
1: And I think I put 450 on him or wow. something like that.
0: <laughs> <It's> so-
1: <laughs> and... Um, and obviously I know, you know, if you saw him late, all of a sudden everything was above 90 and he'd, you know, he'd scrape some fives and stuff like that. It was a different, it was a different dude. But what I saw that day was I was like, you know, I'm out first four rounds, I'm out. And, um and all you can do is report on what you see. But like, I always, you know, I was like, man, where'd this guy come from? Um You know, obviously the, the, the stuff that people saw late that spring at Stetson has maintained, if not grown really. Um And now he is, you know, one of the better pitching prospects in, in, in baseball. And I, I think he will be good right away. I I think it's similar to, to Kelnick. I don't, you know, I don't think this guy's going to pitch like an ace right away, but I think he'll be good right away. I think it'll be interesting to see how, you know, this is, this is not just Seattle's problem. It's every team's problem in terms of uncharred territory, just kind of how they manage the workload from here on out. Um, yeah. You know, we're only, you know, a month into the season, you're still talking about, you know, if if he's going to take the bump from here on out, you're still talking about 25 starts or so, and uh, just kind of interested in how they how they end up managing that more than really more than anything. Um, you know, 2019 he threw 135 innings, and last year was was obviously the shit show that it was. Um, and so I don't, I'm actually more interested in seeing how that, does. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to hold his own. I think he's, you're not going to sit there and go, oh, shit, this guy's got to go down. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think he'll hold hold his own or exceed that, but I'm kind of interested in seeing what it looks like in September, especially if Seattle's kind of hanging around there. You know what I mean? Like I it, I know that, the, um, you know, they've, they've obviously, you know, scuffled a bit as late and they've, they've slid under 500, but. You know, with with the way the standings are these days, they actually could be hanging around, and it's just interesting what happens with that as well.
0: Yeah the the Gilbert stuff is interesting because he was definitely ridden really hard at Stetson. Um, he was the workhorse of their weekend rotation, if you can believe it. A first sure, yeah. guy. You know.
1: What I saw him, I think he threw 120 pitches, and and it, really just kind of scuffled through it. It was like seven innings free runs, some walks, some hits and stuff. But it was, it was like 120. Like he just, they rode him hard.
0: He was big time pop-up guy on the Cape the summer before. And then, yeah, had that like dip early his draft year. And then, uh, almost like pitched himself into shape throughout the year. And I know the Mariners focused on his conditioning initially upon drafting him. Uh, and even if he lives in the low nineties, which is where I think we're going to see him, um, the other traits of the fastball I think are gonna make that pitch play. Right. His secondary stuff is still just kind of okay. It's really the command that switches that stuff on and really weaponizes the the fastball and, and its other traits. So like in his first start this spring at Triple A Tacoma, he threw like sixty some pitches and like most of them were fastballs. He only threw like about 10 uh, sliders and a couple of curve balls And I think like one change up his entire start. Um, and so the secondary stuff is not like, it's not like this is Steven Strasberg coming up or anything like that. No, this is a guy no. who it's softer than that. Um, but yeah, it's like super duper workhorse frame fills the zone. He is built like a tank now. And like, yeah, Over the course of his mid-twenties, would it surprise me if this is one of those types of guys who keeps throwing harder mysteriously, like just through continued weight training and and stuff? Like, no, that wouldn't totally surprise me. And that's the the avenue where it's like, wow, this guy is like super duper good, as opposed to just being a well-rounded, like safe mid-rotation type of guy, which is which is where, you know, he's thirty-fifth on the on the overall list right now. And that's what I think he is. Like that's just what uh, so many of these the guys towards the middle and the back of the list bust. Like basically anyone after 50th overall is like a 50 50 shot of busting. Yeah. Um, and this is a guy who feels very unlikely to to do that, which is you know a pitcher who you feel safe about and who you think you can plug and play into the middle of your rotation tomorrow is like so so valuable in today's in today's game. And then as far as the Mariners are concerned. Yeah, I'm with you. They might they might sneak up on They on, might hang around. Yeah. Um I want to see like I appreciate Sam Haggerty. Um I liked him in college at New Mexico too. He played through a leg injury during his draft year and um like it was pretty shrewd by shrewd draw, job by the Mariners to to stay on him and turn a guy who was like not a high draft pick into an interesting big league bench piece or whatever, but like him Jose Marmolejos is like a 4A hitter for me. Like they need more yeah. They need offense. Depth, yeah. And they gotta get something more out of Evan White or decide to move on at some point. Like there are other ways where uh they can bolster the big league club, but um, right. but the pitching depth for Seattle, I don't know, like either they push farm system chips in or it comes internally. And if it's gonna come internally, then it means like some of the college pitching that they've recently drafted, Gilbert. Uh, if Hancock races there, which I don't know if that's going to happen because the workload bump would just be too huge coming off of a short <laughs> That's a guy season. who also
1: needs a lot of polish still. Um,
0: and like Brandon Williamson doesn't seem like he's going to rock it there. College lefty from TCU who's got two-plus breaking balls, maybe a reliever. Yeah, interesting um, guy. But like Wyatt Mills, the low-slot reliever who they brought up, is, is another one where it's like, yeah, this could be – Brad Ziegler like drop him into the bullpen and maybe you have a setup guy tomorrow and mm-hmm. uh it's it's about trying to pull, you know, Juan Ten uh maybe is an impact bullpen piece right away. I don't know where Andres Munoz is in his uh TJ rehab as I'm sitting here off the top of my head, but like yeah, some of the, some of the internal candidates to do that might be ready at some point this year, but I think that they need to add from outside the org to uh to have enough arms.
1: Um let's let's go from The oh, I guess the majors major minor league guys go to the majors and drop down one more thing to the draft. Um, which obviously you and I you know pay a lot of attention to. Um, you know, it's it's still weird mentally to adjust to like it's May 13th, but you're not panicking about anything, there's still two months to go, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to less than a month. Uh, you know, let's start with the very top where I things are, um, things are not coalescing. Um, and, and it feels like, if anything, you know, we kind of started with, is it, you know, are the Pirates going to take Jack Light or Kubar Rock or one of, the, one of the two Vandy arms, and now all of a sudden um, Texas high school shortstop uh, Mr. Lawler suddenly involved um, as well as the shortstop from California who might be a sleeper in all this. Like, like, what do you hear? As far as the top of the draft, it sounds like things are actually less clear than they were a month ago.
0: Yeah, so... Jack Leiter's been a little homer prone. I've had Leiter at the top of my draft board for like well over a year just because of the confidence in the way his stuff plays, like mm-hmm. the traits that help impart impact movement on Logan Gilbert's low nineties fastball are present in Jack Leiter's mid nineties fastball. Um his command I think is sneaky fringy. I don't think that he Yeah, no, like, I'm with you. Yeah. He's not like a – He's not precise. Precise. Guy. No, he's. I think he's chucking good stuff past college hitters right now in a way that um, is, is going to have to be refined in pro ball.
1: Yeah, the term I always liked um, that I stole from um, someone I worked with, I like, there's a, plenty of days where he's just kind of going out there and outstuffing people.
0: Yep, I think that's right. Um, and then with Rocker, the velo just trickled away. And that's the second time this has happened to him now. It happened his senior year of high school, which is how he ended up at Vandy at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, the family has money. And so they it wasn't like, you know, a situation where. And his father was a left tackle.
1: Was in, it was NFL, right? Yeah. OK.
0: Um, like Rocker came into the year and his body looked absolutely incredible. He was ripped. Absolutely amazing. Like, when he was 15 and throwing really hard already, it was like, yeah, this guy's throwing really hard, but he's maxed out. He's matured physically than all of the other kids his age. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, no, he maintained that until his senior year of high school. And then all of a sudden, closer to the draft, the velo started to bleed away like it has this year. And then he slipped, and the number of teams were willing to meet wasn't what he was willing to sign for. And so he ends up at Vandy has an amazing freshman year where the velo is all the way back, not only all the way back, but like spiking into the upper nineties. He's totally dominant. Then we have no idea if he would have held that throughout all of 2020 because we didn't get a chance to see him. So our last look at him was just him being incredible. Mm. Um, and then he comes into this year and starts the year in incredible way. And then it starts, he's still reaching back for 95, 96 when he wants, but it's not like he's parked there right? and reaching back for nines when he wants. Um, there was a little bit of an arm slot change that you and I noted on a on a stream earlier this year, which looks like there's more backspin on his fastball now than like the tailing uh, action. So we like that, and I feel more confident about this guy's breaking ball than I do either of Lighter's. This is just the prototype upper 80s, like nasty ass slider that the best pitchers in baseball all have. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Rocker does. So between Lighter holding his stuff. And having four pitches and Rocker having, like, two and a half, three, um, and not holding his stuff but looking the part physically in a way that Lighter does not, like, you can kind of take your pick between those two guys, I still think. I'm pretty sure you and I would both take the pitchers who went in the top couple picks of last year's draft over both of these guys still, right? You taking Max Meyer and, and Asa Lacy over both these guys?
1: I don't know about Meyer just because I think there's I, the reliever risk on Meyer bothers me, and I, I, I think I'd put him in the middle.
0: Well, I would take both of the college arms. What about Hancock? I think Hancock is closer to these two. Yeah, I where think I think you he can make an argument.
1: Yeah, I would have Hancock like one tick below those those two you mentioned. But I would have Meyer more in the Hancock world, if you will. If we're if, okay. we're, if, we're, if we're setting stratas.
0: And so then the two shortstops are Jordan Lawler from Jesuit Prep in Texas, uh, who's more well rounded. Uh, he's going to be 19 on draft day. Right.
1: that That's come up a few times. This is a bit of an older guy.
0: Uh, he's not – it's not like this is Manny Machado, right, where you're, it's 6'3", 180, you look at him, play defense, imagine the power that's going to come. This is a more physically mature uh, advanced player. He's closer – he's really closer to what Ed Howard was. Uh, last year, in my opinion, where it's like really well-rounded player. You feel better about the
1: hit tool, though, don't you?
0: Feel better about it?
1: Yeah, than Ed Howard.
0: Oh, I was all I. I You're thought, all in on Howard's hit tool. Yeah, I was more. I think okay. Ed Howard is going to be like a, a rock-solid career everyday shortstop more than like a star-type player, and that's mm-hmm. how I feel about Lawler. Okay. Um, and then Marcelo, so you Mayer. personally
1: wouldn't have Lawler in this group. Like, you wouldn't be. He would not be in your one-one group if you were. The
0: the four guys, Lighter, Rocker, Jordan Lawler, and Marcelo Mayer from Eastlake High High School outside of San Diego, Chula Vista. Uh, This is the high school where Keone Cavaco, the Twins' first-round pick, came out of a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And already at that time, when I went in to see Cavaco, the area scouts were like, watch the sophomore shortstop. He's way better than the guy who's going to go in the first round. Right. Um, And Mayer, it's like lefty stick, uh, more overt body projection than Lawler. Can really dream on the power a little bit more. Um, plus hands defensively, a little bit stiffer-legged, less flexible, not as much bend. Um, but still probably a shortstop with a more favorable offensive profile than Lawler. I think any of those four guys, and maybe even Henry Davis at Louisville, you can just bucket in the, the a big, fat top tier. And it wouldn't surprise me if a bunch of those teams picking the top four were going to do the Correa, uh, you know, what right. colors Approach. Save some money and move down. Right, cut a deal with whichever of these top four or five guys is willing to take the best deal, and then reallocate the bonus uh, pool, cream like room for cream that you've saved into your comp round or second round pick.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other news was was um, Hogland getting a Tommy John surgery. This guy was kind of in the in the next tier of, of starting pitchers. Looked like he'd be. You know once you got past rocker and lighter some people thought he was the best um, had a good chance to be a top 10 pick uh, he, he's still gonna get drafted um but like where do you think this moves him I, th- I think he probably still goes in the first round even
0: I think that's right I think that there are gonna be some teams who for sure at some point there's a there's a there's a point where you look at the talent still on the board and what Hogland offers and just cleanly prefer his ability over whoever's left. So he was a dude in high school, Gunnar Hoagland, and uh, went to Ole Miss. He's more like low 90s with tailing action, but has probably the best command presently in this entire draft. Like, I'm looking right now And a good breaking ball. And a good—yeah, his slider's good, and his command of his slider is— Incredible. I'm actually like digging through my files on the computer right now. I've got a screenshot of all of his slider locations from this year that I want to slack you because it is hilarious. (laughs) Um, But like the college pitching in the draft, I think towards the back of the first round, you can make a case that, that he's comparable to to some of those guys like Jordan Wicks, the lefty at Kansas state, Mm who is another like change up in command type guy. Uh, I don't know that that Hoagland is so much better than him and like Kevin Abel at Oregon State uh, that you'll take him over the healthier versions of him. Right, right. Um, But I I do think you're right. Like at some point in the back of the first round, someone will pull the trigger on this guy because they'll think it's, it's better than the available options. I do think that the college pitching in the draft, especially towards the middle and the back of the first round, there are a lot of interesting test cases where do you want the slam dunk starter with the more vanilla arm strength? Not really stuff like Kevin Abel at Oregon state still has two good secondary pitches.
1: He has weapons, but he doesn't, you're right. He doesn't, he doesn't throw hard in a world where everyone's looking for guys who throw hard.
0: Right. Uh, and then the question is, are teams starting to transition to, caring about secondary pitch quality and execution and training velocity, which seems like it's an easier thing to do than training Mm -hmm. command. Like who do you take? Do you take Sam Bachman and Ryan Cusick and Eric Charentola, who are all guys with like monster upper 90s stuff, but either injury or control issues or both? Or do you take Abel, Wicks, Hoagland, big school collegiate performers whose stuff still seems okay on paper, except for the arm strength. Like Reed Detmers was sitting in the mid nineties the other night already. It sounds like some teams believe we can develop velocity. Like Cleveland certainly is an indication that, that you can take the guys who execute their secondary stuff and have Mm -hmm. good pitch data and train them to throw harder. Yeah. It's
1: interesting. And and it kind of goes against like where we are in the sense of, of, we have gone from, you know, really over just the last six, seven years from having, you know, less than 10 teams who really, really lean on pitch data in terms of their picks to nearly all 30 teams, if not all 30 teams. Um, and so it does come down to how much uh, you're going to count your your player development confidence, if you will, as opposed to, to what's in front of you right now.
0: Yeah, and I think this is where some teams, and I think I'm gonna guess you and I haven't spoken about this explicitly, that when you were with Houston, you were way better initially at integrating Dev into this part of the process than a lot of other teams were, and some of them still are. Um, but the world caught
1: up. Like it, it was yeah. interesting. Like in in you know early drafts. You know I was I was with the Astros. First draft was 2013 through the 2020 draft. Um, early drafts. Pictures that the Astros liked because of pitch data were there for the Astros to take. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they they showed up, and in, you know, really within about three or four years, you end up in a position where those guys would just go off the board. You'd go, "Oh yeah, we, I, every, everybody's on to it now. We know why you like that guy." You know, <laughs> it turned it, it right. turned into that.
0: Yeah, it's a there are game theory components to. The draft process. Um, and I think that there are some teams who certainly they were way out in front of the other ones uh, initially, and now arguably to zag into the mm-hmm. lateral action, command, pitchability guys. Like I'm doing that now. Like on our pro lists that have trickled out over the last couple of weeks. I'm on guys like Ethan Elliott and, uh, you know, the Josh Flemings of the world, basically, where it's sink, tail, cut, a change-up, command, performs consistently. Now that's the, the breed of starting pitcher that's undervalued. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, everyone is like, give me the dudes with the... What did you guys think of the Jazz Chisholm... Zach Gallant trade the moment it was made. Like Gallant's one of those guys where I look at his pitch data now and it's like, wow, this guy's a stud. How come this guy even lasted till the second round?
1: Um, yeah, we, uh, I shouldn't say we anymore, but the Astros uh, definitely uh, made several efforts to try to acquire Zach Gallant. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, he, he, was, he checked all sorts of boxes and, and lit all sorts of lamps. And it was, it was like, this guy is going to be really, really good um and yeah it was I mean the thought was that they traded away a a a floor number two starter like his stuff's that good um and here we are and and he is that and and um so I mean that was the feeling all along he was definitely a guy who um was identified early as a target and just you know if you can if you can acquire all your targets you're the best team in baseball and people can't do that and never got him but yeah it was it was a he was identified quite early as, as someone who is going to be very good based off pitch data.
0: So, like the teams, if we're talking about the draft and teams to watch, uh, it's Cincinnati is at like the top of the list because even though they pick seventeenth, mm-hmm. they have a comp pick at thirty because of uh, Trevor Bauer, and then they have another one at thirty-five just in the competitive balance round, like in right. the you know the draft pick sort of uh, you know doling out to the smaller market teams and such. Um, and so what they do, especially considering what they, like the changes that they have made on the, the dev side, um, I think will be very interesting. Their drafts over the last couple of years, which are like a lot of older high school hitters with strikeout issues, Reese Hines, Austin Hendrick, I guess Tyler mm-hmm. Callahan doesn't have strikeout issues, but it's definitely like he has a, a hole where it's, he's first base only and was 19 on draft day. Um, there are certain teams who were just like, I can't ever see Cleveland taking a guy like that, for instance. Right. Um, so like their draft behavior lately has been uh, not bizarre, but it's not, it hasn't been modernized in a way that some of the other teams clearly has, even though their, their dev side has, Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how the interaction of of that starts to occur. And then, yeah, Miami has a comp pick. Um, Tampa has a comp pick like they always do. And they pick at the back of the first round. So really they're like bold. We can take whoever we want. Pick is at pick 28, and it's just facilitated by pick 34, where if they need to take a haircut, they can. Right.
1: Um, Or if someone's dropping off of bonus demands or other reasons, um, they might be able to take a chance there.
0: Right. So these are the things that we're starting to get. We're still two months out, and I fear that that doing a mock draft tomorrow is still just kind of clickbaity. Um, but mm-hmm. it is definitely time to start noting which executives are where. Uh, even though I think that that's less telling this year than than ever before, because I think more and more teams are moving to video-heavy analysis, data-heavy analysis. Right. That doesn't require the GM to be here and there so much. Um, or the scouting director to be here and there uh, quite as often as before in ways that you know someone would text me or they text you like hey you know uh, Matt Klintak is at uh, Georgia Tech right, and right. Virginia and Adam Hazley's going off or whatever it is um, to the point where you can go oh well that's there seems to be some some smoke there but uh, are, is there anybody else who I mean we mentioned the guys who I think. Our draft rankings are like horrendously out of date. Jackson Job, the high school righty from Texas.
1: Getting some hype.
0: But I don't know where does. Over under pick 10, uh, the first prep arm off the board.
1: I'll go. Well, I'm trying to think of how I say this. So I'll go. I'll, I will go under in the sense that I think one goes before 10.
0: And so that's been like Ryan Weathers. Um, like, I don't think. Who's picking there? Yeah, I mean, I guess Colorado at eight is a wild card to do kind of whatever. Right. Kansas City at seven, I could see taking a prep arm too. Like these are the teams who who don't disqualify them automatically just because of the risk associated with them at the top of the draft. Like right,
1: and nor should they. I, I agree. I agree that you shouldn't just just you know, shouldn't just throw away any any quadrant of player, if you will. <sighs> You don't. I, mean, I
0: don't want to throw it away, but I think I take Sal Frelick over any prep arm. I still think I would take like maybe How? even Adrian Del-, Del Castillo over any of the prep arms.
1: Oh, that's that's a little. I, I was almost with you on the first one. I'm definitely not with you
0: on the second one. Harry Ford, the high school catching is just as risky as uh, high school pitching, if not more so. Mm-hmm. And I still think I would take Harry Ford. The catcher from georgia who's like crazy tooled up yeah <laughs> over over jackson job like i just the amount of the developmental timeline for high school pitchers is so long that i think you're just every year you throw that guy out there again before he's at the big leagues is just another year that he might break yeah um
1: I mean, I, we'll have a lot more on the draft in, in coming weeks. And actually tomorrow, Eric and I will have a Twitch stream, which we're going to kind of go over the board and just kind of discuss where we are and just kind of like how a bit massage. of a kind of how the sausage is made. We're going to massage a little bit and also talk about uh, a lot of players on the board, but also talk about like what we need to still do to, to maybe be more confident in our, in our board movement. And, you know, Oh, look at that player. Let, let's, we need to dig on that guy more and talk to some yeah. people and that kind of thing. It's going to be a, a fun little thing we do on, on Twitch tomorrow. Um, you talked about like where the scouts are and you know, obviously we hear from scouts and, and and I on the amateur side things to be things seem to be um I don't know I'll say it normal right yes but on the pro side I'm hearing strange things for in the sense that you know I talked to a, a friend of mine with a team who um you know works at the team offices and then, then, then lives in the city, obviously where the team plays. And uh, he watches the games uh, in the, when the game starts, he just goes and like grabs a seat in the scout section. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said to me, I haven't seen a scout all year yet. And I said, really? He goes, Nope, not a single one. It's very strange. And um, talked to someone in uh, more of an operations role with a minor league team. And he said, man, we barely had any scouts at our games. And, Is something weird happening on the pro side? See, like... A, we have fewer people with the job.
0: Well, that's definitely part of it. Um, The people who I spend the most time with, who I've spent the most time with recently, are the scouts who either live here in Arizona near me, and I see them at the field all the time, or we're here to cover minor league spring training and there were a lot of scouts at minor league spring training like a Mm -hmm. lot because it's one of those things that's not on tape anywhere there's no alternative whereas every team has video alternatives of increasing quality and often paired with pitch-by-pitch data Mm -hmm. that the scouts can analyze remotely and it saves the teams on uh, travel expenses and the scouts get to be with their families more. And I don't know that there's a lot of I don't know that there there are a lot of like the stuff that there are reasons to scout games in person and I think of that course. they're really, really good reasons they're to legit. do it. Um but the reasons to do that and the information that builds up that makes that a good thing to do hasn't accumulated yet. So Uh, There's some of that, but definitely, like, the people I know who scout have been at games, like...
1: But it sounds like they're not traveling very much.
0: Oh, see, like, the guys... uh, They are. the, The handful of guys that I'm closest to have been out at games. Okay. And some of the games that I've watched on tape, not all the camera angles are friendly for this, but they've there have been scouts there, so I think... I'm trying to think if there's a way coverage may have morphed.
1: What well, impacts I, what's being seen right now? That was one of my things. I was wondering, like, obviously last year, um, scouts were off the road. You know, um, we right. had no minor league games to go to, and they weren't allowed in big league games. And um, or a lot, or sites. and a lot of teams kept their scouts busy by giving them um, assignments they could do from home.
0: Yeah, big picture projects.
1: Yeah, here's here's video and data. Analyze this player, and I wonder how many people walked away from that saying. These are good, you know. These are valuable to us and help us with our decision-making process. And and and, you know, how much of them are, are saying, you no, know, not shutting off in-person scouting on on the professional side, but at least saying, like, these are valuable too. Do we need less on the road?
0: I think that certainly happened, and I think, I mean, I wrote a half a book about this. That's just mm-hmm. like, um, because of the financial piece and the proliferation of video and the data integration that, yeah, there are just better alternatives for this than there used to be. And all of that from a cost cutting standpoint, looks good on the budget sheet and was accelerated by what COVID did to everyone's budget sheet. Um, I mean, some of the stuff is super advanced, you know, visual machine learning algorithms that you can feed high speed video to, and it will spit Mm -hmm. out a stuff grade uh, based on the video, like there are all kinds of ridiculous tools now, but I still think like evaluating hitters, I think maybe some of the scouts are, are there down the lines more often than they are behind home plate. Like, I I don't know, but yeah,
1: yeah. I, um, if, if I go to see, uh, especially on the amateur side, like, Hey, go watch this position player. I'm sitting down the line.
0: Yeah. When I saw you at the, the international amateur event at salt river, that I think was like uh, ran concurrently with GM meetings or something. Yeah. Like that it here. started
1: right after. Yeah.
0: Yeah. None of you, you nor any of the other, I don't know, maybe there was one other Astros person there. You were down the line the whole weekend. Mm. Uh Yeah. I noted that like, it makes sense that especially we're
1: going because- to have video and pitch data off, off the arms. I, right. I can watch their delivery from the side, which is what I'm there to see. Um, I'd, and I'd rather want to position players down the line.
0: Yep. Um, and so maybe that's some of that's going on, in the, the places that we. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. I wonder if that's what's you know that's happening other places too.
0: Uh, and I'm trying to like I'm brainstorming like what if you're going to direct your scouts' attention at this point in time what does it make sense to try to do? And mm. at least towards the end of minor league spring training, they're just a ton of guys who are throwing way, way harder all of a sudden. Like, I don't know if it's sustainable. I don't know where it came from. The Cubs. Right. Basically, like, if Theo Epstein's going to be in the Hall of Fame uh, for ending two historic droughts. But he and the rest of the Cubs regime there failed to extend the window of contention that that roster foundation uh, otherwise would have had because they failed to draft and develop pitching to support the position player base. And then like Addison Russell turned out to be an asshole too, and that didn't help. Um, and Javi bias is bottomed out, which is weird. But like, yeah, like all of a sudden Theo leaves and your head spinning on the Cubs backfields because everyone's throwing ninety six. I don't know if it's because they had Dev turnover and this group is better at at developing guys, or if like the long layoff was good for everyone's yeah strength. Like just resting turns out is good for you. Like right. I
1: don't know. I think, I do think that's part of it. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this goes and, and interesting to see. I, I look forward to kind of getting to a game and just seeing what what the what the turnout looks like in terms of people uh at the game for for work purposes
0: if you go to beloit tonight you're gonna to see Max Bain touch 98 like a guy who's in indie ball two years ago right is just sitting four to eight all of a sudden with like a yacker mm-hmm. and he's 23 but also has like this cushy roster flexibility because he just signed yeah he has and so six he years. Have to be on a you know a 40 man for another four years or whatever like you get to Mm. develop this guy nice and slow and and like you don't have to bullpen him right away even though he's 23 like i don't know it's it's a new the way i'd be directing the pro scouts now is like don't give a shit about pitcher's age care about the roster flexibility with the pitchers right and hitter's it's how old and advanced they are, and what are the bat to ball skills like, and the physical projection, and yeah, I could see how most of that job you're doing from down the line, right? Um, okay, man, we're almost on an hour, Eric. That sounds that sounds about right. That sounds <laughs> it's just just been like a phone call you and I would have during the course pretty of the much, week. pretty much pretty much. So yeah, that's... I look down at my phone and I feel bad sometimes. We I hang up and look at how long our Phone calls and I'm like, oh this guy's got a family. <laughs> I don't feel bad. No, I would let you At go least with I Kylie, know. This was Kylie, I was like, this guy doesn't have anything to do. I'm like saving him from himself. He's <laughs> gonna go, go take- on to whatever dating app he has and hey, make some terrible decisions. Or well, that's past Kylie, pre pre wedding Kylie.
1: Yeah, pre pre previous previous edition. Actually um,
0: Kylie. <laughs> Now he's a married man with a dog. That's
1: right. He's, it's, he's, he's, he's become a normie. Um, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to, to Alex Coffey of The Athletic to help explain what the hell's going on with Oakland. Uh, and then we'll come back, read your email, talk music, talk culture, and stick around. Here. Guest, special guest time our special guest is and this is just weird to say the athletics beat writer for the athletic uh <laughs> she was formerly uh the beat reporter for the athletic for the seattle storm uh prior to that she was a baseball information coordinator for the seattle mariners where she helped write things for the mariners blog uh has been absolutely all over the oakland ballpark story joining us from her luxurious accommodations in new york because we can't have a podcast without someone in new york it's Alex coffee alex how are you
2: Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. Uh, let, let's kind of get into this. I, this story is, is a little weird, and I think there are some subtleties that uh, I was going to say people don't get. There are subtleties that I don't get. Um, but but let's talk about, uh, first, like the news itself with, with what happened with the weird uh, Major League Baseball
2: announcement this week. Right. So on Tuesday, I believe, my con- sorry, my concept of time is like, um, you know, time slipping away from yeah. me. It's pandemic, pandemic. time um believe on tuesday uh espn reported that the a's would start looking into relocation possibilities um and i think you know the wording of that story the way it was put is uh kind of important you know it was like upon a suggestion by mlb that the a's considered doing this um so you know mlb is very much like a figure in this in this story that comes out on tuesday um and, you know, there's no guarantee, the story says there's no guarantee that they're leaving. They're still exploring, you know, the possibility of a waterfront ballpark at Howard Terminal in Oakland, but that they'll start looking at other, uh, other cities like Las Vegas, Vancouver, Portland, Nashville. Um, and the story basically says that it all uh, boils down to this vote by the city council, the Oakland city council in, um, in, July um, prior to their summer recess um, uh, on this A's proposed term sheet, uh, basically like the financial plan for this project. So if the council votes yes, then they stay. And then if the council votes no, they go elsewhere. So that was basically the gist of what was reported on Tuesday.
1: And, And how much of this felt like bluster to try to influence a council vote and how much of it felt like a real threat?
2: Um, I think my first impression when I read it was just, I, had been talking to sources in city government and sources. Um, there's a community group that, uh, that works on something called the community benefits agreement that, um, that kind of lines out, like what the community would like to get out of this project. And, um, you know, it's kind of a collaborative effort for the A's to work with the community. on on this. And i had been hearing from people that were working on that document for the past two years that um, they felt that um, when the A's publicly shared this, this term sheet, this financial plan in uh, late April, that they were blindsided and felt that it wasn't, you know, a collaborative effort and that their you know, all this work that they had done, wasn't incorporated, and they weren't really being heard. And basically, the gist of what they were telling me, was that this was all setting up for the A's to be able to point back to the city um, and convince MLB that, you know, we can't work with the city. Um, You know, our hands are tied, like, please let us go elsewhere. And at the time, you know, hearing that I thought it did, I'm not going to lie, it kind of sounded like a little bit of a (laughs) tinfoil hat kind of Mm -hmm. conspiracy theory. I wasn't sure. Um, how much truth there was to it, but I did think it was interesting that it, I kept hearing it from different people, like, you know, obviously speculative, but it was a, it was a legitimate concern. Um, and so when this story came out, it just kind of seemed like it kind of all like pieced together in my mind. And I was, it, you know, I was just like, oh, okay. So this is a way that, you know, this is someone else that they can point to if they do want to relocate, you know, rather than saying, like, we are choosing to relocate. They can say, you know, MLB is instructing us to look into relocation or the city, you know, we're, un- we're unable to work with the city because they won't approve this term sheet or, you know, um, it kind of gives them reasoning, so to speak.
1: But it, it sounded like based on what's was, words, it was like MLB kind of had an open offer to Oakland to kind of put the hammer down and be, and help influence this decision though. No?
2: Yeah, so I did a little bit more digging after the story came out. And I found out that um, dating back to their and this predates Howard Terminal. So this is like dating back to their effort to um, build a ballpark at Laney College, which I believe, I want to say it was like 2016 was when they started Mm -hmm. um, thinking about that. I might have the date wrong. But um, they had this you know long-standing offer from rob manfred to basically put some public pressure on the city um you know to you know basically come to some kind of agreement with the a's um should they should progress come to some sort of standstill so um so in talking to sources, former employees and sources within the organization, this was something that they had at their disposal. And it kind of all depended on like the tenor of the negotiations with the city. You know, it wasn't a guarantee that they were going to act on it, but it was kind of one of those things where it's like, here's a bullet. You know, if you want to use it, use it. and But you can only use it really like once, right? You can't. <laughs> like, right. It, it kind of loses a little bit of its luster, you know, if he's constantly doing stuff like that. Um, so. So yeah, that was, that was something that I found after the story was, after Cason's story was published earlier.
1: Do you, do you get the sense that Oakland, that the Oakland A's want to leave Oakland? um, Or do you get the sense that this is just kind of, you know, just pure baseball capitalism. They're just going to go wherever is the most beneficial to them financially. If that's Oakland, great. If it's, Nashville, Las Vegas, Vancouver, or Poughkeepsie, New York, great.
2: (laughs) Well, I do want to preface this by saying that I think that when they started the effort at Howard Terminal, they were genuinely, like, I don't think that this is, um, you know, this was all designed to fail from the beginning, right? Like, (laughs) I do think (laughs) that they were genuine. I've been thinking a lot about the producers, the movie, the producers, the Mel Brooks movie about, it's like this play that's designed to flop. Um, and I'm like, I wonder if, you know, (laughs) there's like a degree of that going on here, but I I don't think from the beginning that, that this was like, you know, I think that they were sincere. I mean, obviously a lot of time and money has gone into this, but I do think, um, if you read their statements now, a lot of emphasis is put into their effort. Um, you know, they say that they've tried and they've invested X and, you know, they have to be realistic and, um, You know, the phrasing of that almost to me seems like um, the City Council voting no is seen as some kind of foregone conclusion at this point. Um, So I don't know. It's not like they're coming out and saying that they're going to leave. But kind of reading between the lines and these statements that we have from the A's president, Dave Cavill. it does seem like they're kind of shifting gears. That's my impression at this point. And it it is a win-win for them. I mean, either way, um, they're going to get their new ballpark somewhere. It's just a matter of where, right? So (laughs) um, they either get it in Oakland on their terms, um, you know, at at the location that they want, or they get it in Vegas or Portland or, you know, Nashville or wherever they end up, you know, if they end up relocating.
0: So as far as the payroll of the a's goes has there been anything uh, like uh, promises attached to uh, a new ballpark or uh like has the has the organization indicated that they would be willing to increase what has been for like this entire century an embarrassingly low payroll uh <laughs> if they were to get a new ballpark or you know to do like, um, obviously the way the marlins handled business like this when they got their new ballpark was to boost the team's payroll for like a year or two and then sell all those pieces off and sort of bottom out again. But I'm curious if there's been any discussion around uh, the way the team has spent money and why would we funnel public funds toward a a facility when the team doesn't seem inclined to spend to compete?
2: Yeah, Um, there has been um, the, the kind of standard line up to this point has been that They aren't spending until there are shovels in the ground (laughs) so uh so i guess whenever construction starts on a new ballpark is when they would increase their payroll that's kind of the loose uh i don't know if we want i would want to call it a promise but that's been that's the line that has been told to us so far
1: you you said earlier that that the, the council vote seems like it'll be a no is that correct
2: it's hard to, I mean, I'm trying to kind of get a sense of, um, like take their temperature right now. Um, it's definitely, uh, I would say a nuanced <laughs> issue. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of political pressure on the mayor right now, and she's not on the city council, but if the council were to, um, it, if it were to be a tie, she could break a tie. Um, Cause she's technically part of the council, but you know, she's, I don't know, I guess she has the power to break a tie if it, if it did come to that. So um, I do think it's worth noting that two professional sports teams have already left under her watch as mayor so far. And I think a third would, you know, obviously have ramifications on her political career. Um, So there's that, you know, consideration. Um, But as far as the council goes, one thing I keep hearing is that they don't respond well to aggressive tactics. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I, I, I think it'll be, I don't really know like how they're going to respond to this because I do think it would be unpopular if the A's, you know, if the A's left, but I think that people that are reading the actual term sheet and understand, you know, the taxpayers um, obligations and all of this, um, you know, might feel a little bit differently about them leaving. <laughs> so you know, it's, it's kind of a complicated issue.
1: One of the things that came up this week was um, the team saying that they've spent over $200 million on this whole shebang so far, Mm -hmm. which just made me kind of sit back and say, what? And um, talk about over $200 million before, to use your term, putting a shovel in the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, Where the hell did that money go?
2: Uh, I asked them. Well, so I asked a team spokesperson initially, and they just said the $230 million is the total amount we've spent on the new ballpark efforts so far, which um, didn't seem like an adequate answer. And then uh, I asked the team president, and he said, um, you know, it was funding, like, City staff that works on the project, and um, you have you to know, pay for it. It's not.
1: It's not on Oakland's to pay yeah, for. Yeah,
2: design work, um, entitlements, research. But even. I mean, that's a very lofty number. So even even right, it's hard to come all, up
1: with two hundred something million with that stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I don't really think that we've gotten um, a very clear sense of where that where that came from. I mean, it's possible that they could be including the cost of um, buying half of the Coliseum site in that figure. Um, I didn't ask Dave Cavill about that when I talked to him, but I guess that's possible. Um, And I think that they bought it for 85 million. So um, so they could be folding that in. Uh, Honestly, the numbers that they've thrown out in this in this term sheet, um, you know, in this financial plan are coming under a lot of scrutiny because um, the numbers mix um, current like the current value and inflation adjusted dollars. And it's like, you know, there, there's a lot of um, creative accounting. Yeah. Yeah. Speculation about how these calculations are are being made. And there isn't a lot of transparency about, you know, where these numbers are coming from. So I'll throw that out too. <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, as, as a beat writer, um, i mean how do you first of all i guess i have two questions here but the first one is kind of like how do you adjust from going to um hey the a's won five to two and chris bassett pitched really well (laughs) to all of a sudden you know like needing a a degree in business as well as uh construction management to kind of understand some of this stuff
2: yeah well i think it's funny because i think beat writers in general have to know they have to understand so much, you know, about, um, how the human body works and economics. And, um, you know, like, I, I, I really think that B writing is a multifaceted role, but then mm-hmm. you, and not to, um, make myself out to sound like a victim, but I do think that this specific team, you, it requires, a, you know, kind of, you know, doing the work to understand like the nuances of local government and, um, you know, being able to read some of these dense, uh, dense is probably a generous word, but some of these dense jargon filled uh, documents and stuff. So yeah, it's, it is tricky to to shift gears. But um, but you know, this is such an important story. And and if it were going to be approved, it would have such ripple effects on the area. um, Not just in terms of, um, you know, the ballpark being built but it's it's a real estate development too i mean there's like units of housing in there and you know i think like an amphitheater a concert center um a retail space um you know and that would affect like for example traffic in the area and pollution and there's um you know a lot of environmental um potential impacts too so um yeah i think it's a really important issue to you know to kind of flush out and um but it definitely does require kind of like instantly shifting gears on a whim so <laughs> can be a little bit of a challenge sometimes
1: um so i think anyone who's been to i don't even know what it's called i'm just gonna call it oakland coliseum anyone who's <laughs> been to the stadium um it doesn't take you know more than five minutes to there to say oh god they need a new stadium right i think everyone agrees mm-hmm. that that stadium is is um to be kind, outdated, to be fair, a dump. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I mean, they've, they've obviously, you know, they've, they've, you know, kind of shot for, uh, there's been a lot of various bases. You know, I'm, I'm an old man. I can think of like five different places they were going to move.
2: Right, um,
1: right. It seems like the location for that stadium is actually pretty solid in terms of getting yeah. there. Yeah. Um, Why don't they just tear it down and build a new stadium right there?
2: I mean, we haven't heard a very, um, I can't think off the top of my head, what the, what the reasoning, um, has been for not being able to just renovate the stadium there. I think part of it is that, um, if this all were to coalesce this Howard terminal project, um, like they would, you, they would buy this, the other half, ideally. Of the um, Coliseum site from the city, and then renovate that development, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know what they would put there, but they would generate revenue from that to like help fund the Howard Terminal site. So I guess part of the issue with renovating the Coliseum or rebuilding at the Coliseum would be, where does that um, revenue come from, right? For like I guess infrastructure costs the ballpark and building and you know things like that. Um, but beyond that, I haven't really heard of a good or convincing reason why they can't just go with the obvious, maybe less alluring um, option of just rebuilding at the Coliseum because there's a ton of parking space and there's, you know, right next to BART. Um, like from a transportation standpoint, it really, it makes a million times more sense to me, you know, just by opinion. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's a valid, valid uh, point.
1: So, I mean, back to the kind of being the beat writer thing, you know, obviously, you know, you deal a lot with people in uh, in the front office on a baseball operations level. Um, I mean, and I, and I always kind of always feel bad for people on a baseball operations level on these kind of stories because this is all yeah. even above them in a way. Yeah. Like this is, this is ownership and business. Um, do they, I mean, obviously, you know, this would benefit them in the sense that they would have more flexibility in terms of building a team right um do they kind of do you feel like they share the same frustrations that oakland fans do about the situation
2: you know it's kind of hard to ascertain um i do get the sense and this is just my you know my take but i do get the sense that there is somewhat of a divide in this organization between you know The baseball ops side and the business ops side um just in terms of you know like even if you look at like funds that are allocated to to um baseball ops i mean i Mm -hmm. sent a tweet um i mean someone has to check my math math has never been my forte but i calculated the team payroll over the last four years and it was somewhere around 287 million and then a's ownership say that they've spent 230 million on trying to build a new ballpark in Oakland over the last four years. So you put those two numbers together and it's like, I don't know. I mean, it really points to where the priority is. Right. Um, right. So I have a hard time imagining that there isn't some degree of tension around that alone. You know, just how much funding is going into this ballpark quest that has not seen, um, you know, I don't want to say it's seen no results, but, Um, we're in the sixth iteration of this, you know, the saga now. And, uh, you know, definitely doesn't seem like a done deal. So, um, so yeah, I I definitely get this, I I could see how there would be some sort of tension around that. But I also do think that, you know, there is kind of this, to me, it seems like there's this organizational divide between baseball ops, business ops, um, just in the sense of like, you have this baseball ops department that is historically capable and adept at operating under this under these payroll restrictions Than then a business ops side that's on its six you know sixth try of this that has right. a ton of turnover on the ballparks, you know, consultants come and go and, you know, their architect left recently and, you know, just a lot of turnover. Um You know, so you can't like pin it on one specific person because there is, you know, there are a lot of people coming and going. But the fact of the matter is, you know, they've tried six times since 2006 and it still hasn't gotten done and the funding is there. So, you know, it kind of, it's just like an interesting dichotomy to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, that is kind of what jumps out to me when I like look at the organization as a whole. So,
0: and then in terms of like the fan and like A's. Uh, viewers and people of the city, what is their general sense of this? I mean, obviously, it's been going on for quite a long time, but the way that fans and people communicate about this issue has changed over the course of that time. So, like, what are the avenues that are driving the discourse? Uh, we've had, you know, teams in various sports, and obviously, you said it's happened to Oakland a couple times over the last uh, few years. Mm -hmm. teams in various sports are threatening to relocate all the time and most of the time they don't that it's just a ploy to get public dollars to build a new thing and then they end up staying because as you said like the politicians end up feeling pressure to keep the sports team that their voters love in town so that they vote for them again they don't want to be blamed for them leaving so like what's the discourse like in oakland and what's driving it now is it sports talk radio is it what's being written is it social media and like what is the general sense about what the right thing to do
2: is you know, I think what is what is driving a lot of it is that um, Dave Cavill, the team's president, is like very, very public. For as reticent as the owner, John Fisher, is, Dave Cavill is just as public. So he, he's on Twitter, you know, he'll do things like um, take pictures of, um, I don't know, like asbestos or something in the Coliseum, mm-hmm. and like, and he'll be like, Uh, you know, the other day he took a picture of something that was run down. I don't remember what it was. And he basically said, um, look, you know, this, this ballpark is, is not, um, is past its usable life Or I'm paraphrasing, but he linked to this petition to, um, encourage the city council to vote yes. And kind of use that as to like leverage, um, you know, support for their ballpark project. So that's one example, but, you know, I think that he, um, he kind of drives a lot of the the talk among the amongst the fan base around this, but I do think that um, it's things are starting to people are starting to look at it with a little bit of a more skeptical eye. Um, you know, more is being written about um, you know these two tax districts that would be created to fund infrastructure costs for this project, and um, you know the A's say that there this project will generate, for example, $450 million in community benefits. That's another number that people are uncertain of, you know, how they got to that number, where it comes from, but those community benefits are taxpayer funded. So mm-hmm. is it truly a community benefit? You know, it, like, what, what is the role of the A's in this exactly? You know, is it truly a community benefit that the A's are giving the community if taxpayers are paying for it themselves? I and, mean, um, you know, so people are starting to parse the words a little bit, which I would, or parse his language, parse the team's language a little bit, um, which I think is starting to change change the discourse.
0: Yeah, to be clear, the any all the economic studies done previously indicate that like there's not really an impact that all the quote unquote jobs created by a new venue are taken away from the old one. And even if there is an entertainment park uh, put nearby the stadium that we're talking about, you know, seasonal jobs and like bartenders and stuff. It's not like careers are being created. It's it's uh, the types of jobs that we're having trouble at this moment (laughs) filling. And anyway, um, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like. I don't know, I forget the the economists who have studied this now in the past, but yeah, this is like this guy sounds like the evolutionary David Sampson who you know, <laughs> even though he f- found a way to wiggle out of Rico conspiracy charges at one point before the expos moved and yada 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 is generally seen as like a piece of shit. He still has a podcast on CBS now. You know, like this is what happens to these people. <laughs> um <laughs> I said that. Nobody else said that. That's
2: fine. <laughs> um,
1: so, Alex, I mean, let's I, I kind of want to wrap this up and force your hand here a little bit. Oh,
2: um, no.
1: OK. Yep, That's what, <laughs> this what happens. Um, if they were setting odds uh, and, and God knows the way sports betting is going, yeah. maybe they have already somewhere. Um, but if, if, you know, in 2030, uh, what's <sighs> the percentage chance that the Oakland A's are still the Oakland A's?
2: Oh, um, I got an email about this yesterday. Some guy was like, "I think these odds might interest you." Like the odds were. Of oh, it's actually it's, like it's out there already. Good yeah, word. um, maybe I should just lean on that. No, uh,
0: I'm on that mailing list too. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. He always I'm glad says I'm not. No, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. Um, I, ugh, I don't. I feel like right now it, I would probably put it at like. 70% odds that they leave, 30% odds that they stay. Um I can see a world in which the city council votes yes because it would just be so devastating for this team to leave, but you know, putting making this term sheet public in April and then you, you know, MLB in quote instructing quote them to look into relocation, you know. Um that obviously like puts a lot of pressure on the city. Um, even if it is a deal that they're, it seems that they're uncomfortable with. So I don't know. I, I I can see a world in which they vote yes, but then on the flip side, I can also see you know how they don't respond well to to this kind of tactic and uh, how the you know the financial side that would you know the, how the financial side of the plan wouldn't be approved so uh, And, and what
0: is this council vote again
2: in um the if they want to do it before the summer recess it would be july 20th i believe um late july
1: and and kind of how binary are the results of this vote like if it's a yes are we are is it like we're a go and if it's no is it like we're a go to leave is it is it that simple or is it or is it just more of hitting a reset button and making things more complicated
2: uh, well, one thing that isn't really being discussed much is um, the fact that if they do vote yes, these two taxpayer districts that um, will provide a lot of the funding for the infrastructure would have to, they would have to vote apparently on like how the, the revenue from those districts is used. So like mm-hmm. they would have to sign off like on, I guess, um, like people in those districts would have to sign off on. You know the creation of those districts in general and and how those you know and how that revenue is used so because basically what the A's are doing right now is they're proposing to redirect money um property taxes from that area and redirect it away from the general fund from oakland's general fund into the ballpark infrastructure costs so it's not like they would be taxed more it's just that the you know they would just be Shifting that money from the general fund away to infrastructure, so that is something that, you know, could be another potential roadblock for them, which isn't really being talked about right now. But so I guess I guess that's like a long winded way of saying that um, even if they do vote yes, there are other potential
1: more potential
2: roadblocks. Um, but I mean, building a ballpark in California isn't easy, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Alex, I want to thank you for joining us uh, and helping uh, explain what you can and making other things murky that are unavoidable. <laughs> if you want to uh, read Alex's stuff, you head over to The Athletic, follow on Twitter at By AlexCoffee, B-Y-A-L-E-X-C-O-F-F-E-Y. You have anything else you want to plug?
2: No, I think, I, I think I'm think i good. Um, <laughs> okay. Thanks for having me on, guys.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. back to the podcast big thanks to Alice coffee for talking to us about the mess that is Oakland um, your musical guest this episode is Milwaukee's legendary couch flambeau uh, one of the more uh, influential bands of the 80s one of those bands that uh, a lot of people probably haven't heard of but were uh, very important to music history uh, massively massive in the Midwest if you will uh, they're a band in the 80s kind of a power trio um, Their 1985 release, The Day the Music Die, was cited by Spin Magazine as one of the eight essential precursors to grunge. Um, This is an important band. And anyway, they're back. Uh, Milwaukee's all-time favorite rock band. Uh, This is off their new 12-inch EP called Bunny Hideout. Um, Their famous fans include a friend of the podcast, Steve Albini, uh, Dave Grohl, uh, Dan Weber. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Weber of Eber is the Simpsons writer, co-producer. I'm not a Simpsons guy, but I know plenty of people are. And uh great band. Again, this is off their, their, their newest record called Bunny Hideout. You can check their stuff out uh, couchflambeau.bandcamp.com. And thanks to uh, the great folks at, at Couch Flambeau, especially Jay Tiller, for getting in touch and letting uh, us play the music on the show. Are you ready for emails? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, send us emails, folks. Timmusic at fangraphs.com. We read them all we answer some of them keep them coming they're an important part of the show uh, this is also the time where i always remind you if you are a person who listens to us on apple devices to rate and review the podcast it helps in ways that i cannot explain how our first email comes from a guy named rivers and it's not rivers cuomo and if it was i would ask him what the hell happened to your career Rivers says so 12 episodes in I think what strikes me as a yeah. big difference between the old podcast and the new podcast is that you've seen the insides of the business and there's a lot settled. The major hanging question of how you fix baseball's three true outcomes has gotten a lot of play from various guests because the kind of things you think about in 2011 are mostly solved or optimized. Would you agree with that characterization? And if not, what do you think remains to be solved? Um, I, I've talked about this a lot excuse me, I've talked about this a lot. I think I've been on previous shows where, um, you know, one of the biggest projects that was undertaken with Houston. And I know other tons of other teams are on this. And it's still the, it's still a black box and lot of it is injury prevention. Um, obviously we're not doing a good job at it as an industry. If you look at the, the injury rates this year and how they've exploded. Um, I think a lot of that is because of the, is because of the strangeness that was 2020, but um people have worked hard to try to get into injury prevention and try to create injury models and things like that to try to understand and and help adjust for injuries. And I remember basically the output, all the output really told, you know, from a pretty large project, the only thing the output really told us was that guys who get hurt tend to get hurt again. And ties who are healthy tend to get healthy. And, 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 and the word tend, um, was carrying a whole hell of a lot of water as well um and so injuries are still something and and player health is still something that teams are very very focused and obsessed on and they it's definitely not to use your term solved or optimized it's still a long way to go and they're they're really from everything i know i don't think there's been any kind of breakthrough there um we do remain in a situation in terms of video and data where we are still and i've always been way ahead on pitching than we are on hitting I still think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of, of understanding hitting and what makes hitters good. Uh, but I also have the belief that one of the things that's in there is very hard to measure, where it's no, it's not a physical or mechanical thing as much as it's a hand-eye coordination thing. And um, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of, I forget about improving that, merely measuring it. Um, does anything come
0: to mind for you, Eric? I think you touched on the major point. I think... I think in-game strategy has shifted considerably during this sure. 10-year stretch that's being described, uh, and that a lot of the way that has evolved occurred behind closed doors. It's not really something that's been written about a ton, like the way some of the pieces of a pitching staff are being deployed maybe has, but but some of the... the I, I guess to describe it as platooning is not quite the way to, to do it, but... Um, in essence that's that's what it is and like the way diver- defensive versatility has shifted into that i don't think that we've on the public side like kind of quantified how some of the teams voltron uh pieces together in a way mm-hmm. that makes the the hitters greater than the sum of their parts um i think that describing it occurring has happened i just did it uh but like exactly how much it's adding and I do wonder, that has made me wonder about like lineup sequencing if some of the ways that it was looked at in the past are flawed um, and that especially as substitutions become more common yeah, and roster expansion allows, like facilitates more of this type of thinking uh, that if setting yourself up to have, to be able to make the right big moves late in games without compromising other stuff um, has evolved. Like it's hard. It is hard to describe, but like if you have a Ryan McBroom or like another one of these positionless boppers on your bench, that's facilitated by uh, the extra by roster expansion. And you want that guy to hit in a high leverage spot. Where he can like tie the game or put the game out of reach or wh- whatever it may be, uh, the situation calls for extra bases if you can if you can have them. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that like throwing Vogelbach in there it often means that you're eliciting a pitching change that might compromise whoever's going to hit after him. Uh, and so like maybe lining up your like I've just noticed the way Cleveland has done it where they like stacked switch hitters at the very top of the order. And then left, right, left, right with someone who has a platoon partner at the bottom of the order uh, or like mixing some of the switch hitters in so that, you know, no matter what the pitching change, two batters ahead of them is, uh, you're, you're getting a favorable matchup um, it, it, on deck, basically.
1: You're taking advantage of the three, of the three hitter rule as well. Right.
0: Yes. Uh, so some of that stuff, I think, has the teams have done a better job at enacting on the field than we have. Uh, quantifying the impact of and writing about on, on the public side. Um, I think injuries are always going to be a thing, especially for pitchers in that the, the way teams interact with the 60-day DL has just become more aggressive. Like that's the way they've solved that. Um, right. But yeah, I, I don't know how to solve the pitching thing. I don't think it Injuries. Does.
1: Um, our next email comes from Ian. Ian says, in your recent pod, you shared that gifts of pitchers are fun to look at, but sequencing is as important aspect to acknowledge when discussing the effectiveness of pitchers. I was wondering if during a TV broadcast, you would be interested in seeing what types of pitches were thrown during the at-bat or previous at-bats. This leads me to a larger question. If you were in charge of producing a TV broadcast, what would you change about the way data about players is presented? Are there stats you would like to see that aren't incorporated, like splits or ground ball rates? Or is the way the game is presented visually ideal as far as strike zone boxes, TV angles, etc.? I know the broadcast isn't for the reader of Fangraphs, but I'm curious the way you and your guests would want to watch the game. Um, I will say that I recently, I can't remember what game it was, but I ended up kind of just flipping to uh, whatever ESPN calls the ESPN2 thing, the StatCast broadcast or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they actually had in the upper left corner of the sequence. And I was really happy to see it. So you saw, you know, it was like a you know it was a 3-1 count and you saw in the upper left hand corner what his what the four pitches that got him there was. You know, it was like fastball 94, slider 82, fastball 93, fastball 95, right? Um I thought that was really cool and really helpful and I I, I liked seeing that. Um I think one thing that TB needs to do better when they're using the advanced data and Um, and I think it's something that Fangrass has to do better um, and anyone who's using advanced data is to contextualize data better and when we talk about somebody who has um, a number and we say oh it's a 6.3 I think we need to explain better what a 6.3 means but and maybe more importantly how good is a 6.3 what's average is the average 4.5 then 6.3 is you know this much above average and and, and 6.3 is that above average or is that like top 10 in baseball and trying to explain those kind of things as opposed to just saying these numbers and expecting everyone to get, it. I think the way you can really educate people on numbers. They're not used to, you know, numbers that are not standard back of the back of the baseball card kind of numbers is to contextualize them and explain this is what it is. And it's, it's, it's either, you know, average above, way above elite, et cetera. I I think that's a really important aspect as opposed to just throwing the number on the screen.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the Seattle Mariners have done a really good job with that specific thing. They almost have it's almost like pop-up video the way it happens on their. Yeah, broadcast. yeah, yeah. I've
1: seen this. Yeah,
0: and it's it's rarely, if ever, addressed by the the booth, which I think is totally fine. Like it just kind of pops up. It gives you context a lot of the time for what you're looking at. Totally inobtrusive. Uh, I I think that's a fantastic way to to go about it. I like the sequencing. Uh, part two where I think it's helpful for novice viewers to see the movement of the pitch and then immediately be told what it is all the time and not have to rely on the broadcaster to occasionally mention the pitch type. I think there are a lot of people who uh, would be drawn to baseball if they started to, you know, it's just inviting to start to feel like you're quickly having a fundamental understanding of what's going on. Um, and so to see a pitch and then see Slider flash up on the screen every time right away and how hard it is uh, for a lot of novice users, I think would be would be really cool to see consistently. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you that the StackCast broadcast did a good job at that. The broadcast that I miss is the the ballpark audio on um, MLB TV? That's just the sound quality I like. I'm not like anti-announcer. I think a lot of the play-by-play and color uh, broadcasters bring a lot to the table and are really good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. But just the sound quality of the stuff I like in general, whether it's movies or uh, the moment of culture we did on the first episode of this podcast with like I actually like that low drone. I like the white noise of a busy ballpark. I like the chatter. I like to be able to hear uh, the crack of the bat be like an explosive thing. And so I miss ballpark audio. And I'd really like them to bring that option back. Um, But yeah, I think in general that um, the things you mentioned really touch on the main stuff that I would say. And then, I don't know. I I know that there there have been instances where during the spring spring training broadcast and stuff, where the players are mic'd up, and they, there's been an effort to bring some of that to the broadcast, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um,
1: I, I'll be honest with you. I I I, I don't. I tend to like. I, if I see them on YouTube, I watch them, and I'm highly entertained by them. I like them.
0: I like the. Um, I like when it's cut up afterward, but I don't. Yeah,
1: like, then that's what I watch. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like I like the hard knocks style uh mic'd up you know like on as a 10 minute segment or whatever on every producer's just like 10 minutes yeah right dude as a six minute segment on like baseball tonight or something like that right 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 um
1: the other, other thing this is tangential and i go on this this rant every once in a while and this is this is i mean this is related to broadcast um i think we have to get people like john smoltz off of broadcast i think we have to i think Baseball is a business, and part of that business is public relations. And um, a lot of the national broadcasts are very guilty of this. And I do see a lot of it on, on team-specific broadcasts or not. We have to stop having a baseball game being three hours of a guy who played 25 years ago bitching about the current state of baseball. It's an absolute nightmare.
0: I can empathize at least... The fact that we're on here discussing the way that the data should be uh, articulated to the viewers to normalize it isn't – it's not John Smoltz's cup of tea. you know. Like right. That guy wants to play golf and then show up and let several decades of experiential knowledge carry the day for him. And if you tell him that that's – like no, he actually has to understand some of this stuff. Like Just a bunch of the people who do this are going to be like, oh, I'd rather not.
1: Right. And to be um, clear, I would like to talk to John Smoltz about pitching all day
0: sure yeah um so i i agree with you that the tone that uh should not be cranky um i'm like i really appreciate that uh oral hersheiser has a genuine curiosity and that david yeah 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 like there are plenty of old hat like you know toad the rubber three decades ago guys who are open to and fluent in a lot of the concepts that we're talking about and still and, and appreciate there's it. was balance. Yeah. Like ultimately I just want there to be balance.
1: That's fair. Um, our next email comes from Jerry. Jerry says in this week's show, you discussed the aggressive promotion of prospects at the start of the 2021 season. Uh, this was in comparison to where they ended in 2019. This assumes that 2020 was a loss season but the players did have some coaching and some games at their minor league complexes. So how would you rate the 2020 season for prospects as compared to a normal season? Was it worth a full season? Was it worth 75%, 50% or of little value? Um, I think it's very player specific. Uh, I think some players got close to a full year of development. And I think some players got close to an entire missed year of development. It's important to note that you know, those minor league alt sites were not filled with 200-something players. And there are plenty of players who did, uh, uh, I believe the term you used was at-home work, um, who were stuck at home and, and were just kind of working out on their own and and, um, and building mounds and, and throwing in their backyard and things like that. I don't think that served them especially well. It was better than nothing. Um, and I also think every player is different uh, in, in how they are. And um, I was talking to uh, an upper-level executive um, just this week, and we were talking about you know they thought about um bringing player x up to uh to play to 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 pitch as a pitcher and and he said like this guy hasn't pitched a competitive game since 2019 and i just think pitching against your own your own you know guys wearing the same uniform as you it's just not the same it's not the same and and i just didn't want to i didn't want to throw him to the wolves yet i, I just didn't want to do it and uh and that made sense to me as well so i, I do think I think you have the full gamut there. I think you have guys who were very little value and guys where it was close to worth the full season. And I think it's a very individualistic thing.
0: I agree. I think you're right that especially with the guys who were not participating in alt site or instructs. For and again, that's, and that's like, the
1: majority of players. Like we had that alt sites and instructs and it was great. Most of them were upper level guys. We had tons of lower level guys who got no in-person instruction.
0: Right, and... Some of it was done. Clearly the teams were like, give our best 60 guys. They're the ones going to uh, Instructs in the fall. And it's our mm-hmm. best 60 guys minus the 10 prospects who were at the all site or whatever. Uh, and then some teams clearly were thinking more specifically, like, can this player who lives and trains in Nashville access a mound right. consistently on his own? Do we trust him? And his relationship with the pitching coordinator that, you know, he can do remote work, throw on, a, you know, for a trackman unit, send us that data and hit developmental goals on his own without having to have supervision. And some of them were just, you know, some of the guys were left to go back to the Dominican or Venezuela and just like makeshift. Somewhere with a bunch of other guys and and just do something on their own, like um,
1: right. And send a video and get, some, and get and you know, have a Zoom call and 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 you know do stuff off of that. It was really hard
0: in terms of the promotion piece. I think you do have to try to reject your gut instincts when you see Tristan Casas suddenly at Double A, uh, or when you see Alec Manoa suddenly at Triple A, mm-hmm. um, and just try to push out of your mind and your feeling about it that the last time you saw some of these guys was in A-ball. Um, I think the thing to think about when that comes up is where are the players who were released where did they come from? Uh, that is really the vacuum that the guys who are being promoted are kind of filling. Uh, so I think that we're going to have another wave Um that it's sometime between the draft and, like, sometime after draft signings and after extended spring training and, like, before the AZL and GCL startup that there's going to be another wave of promotions and guys getting released. And that really there are a bunch of guys who have been promoted, like, a half level too soon. Yeah, but I, mean, I talked like that. about this
1: last week with Joe Sheehan where... If, if you look at, you know, and I think that a good example of this is high A right now, um, where a lot of people are making their quote unquote full season debut, even though we don't have short season anymore. Uh, and you go, oh, man, look at all these guys and they all got rushed. They all got pushed up and they all got rushed. But if that league suddenly has a hundred guys in it and you could do that where it's like, oh, that feels rushed. If there's a hundred guys who feels rushed, then nobody is rushed. You just need to recalibrate what that league is.
0: Right. Yeah. The the baseline of everyone has moved up. Yeah. Um, and there are – we talked about it earlier, right? Like Trevor Howver being 21 or 22 years old from a, a huge program and being at low A, whereas, you know, right? Tristan Casas was a high school draftee who's still 21 and is a level ahead of him. Like th- there, some of that is like the roster timeline for the guys maybe has dictated it too. Um, but, yeah, I think that theoretically if you just put the puzzle piece in as last year this guy would have been at – low A and now he's at high A, so he went from rookie ball to high A. It's not actually a leap. Like it's not uncommon for a pitcher like Alec minota to reach double A in his first full season. Right. He's a top fifteen college arm. So if he's not reaching double A in his first full season, like maybe there's something wrong there. But um so yeah, like I, I don't know. It's I think it's fine. I think that there are gonna be mistakes that have been made. Um and I think a lot of it has to do with like the reduction of the roster limits uh the way the sequencing of players being released how that relates to extended spring training and the draft class coming in and the size of the draft class versus the lack of one from last year uh that all of that has created like a weird dynamic that we uh, you know even just seeing Brooklyn play Asheville in a box score at all has me on tilt so <laughs> I, you know i can't you know, I don't know if we can have a great feel for what the weird off year for some guys and and right. what seems like a leap in promotion means.
1: Yeah, I just think I think like like almost all things baseball, there is no blanket answer here, um, and no like single variable that you can apply to it. You know, point six four three or whatever. I just don't think it's there. I think every player is individual, and they're all very different with how they dealt with with twenty twenty. Um, our final email comes from Kyle. Kyle says, "Hi KG and guest, that's you, Eric." Uh, Hi Kyle. Unsure if this one is too close to home for you to take. It's not. You can ask me about Astros stuff. I don't care. But I also think you'd probably have a better perspective than anyone else on it. The Astros are getting a decent pop in the media after announcing that they'd provide furnished apartments for their minor league players. The positive response isn't surprising since it's the right thing to do and seems like it would provide obvious benefits for players performance-wise. As teams search for an edge they can find, do you think progressivism... Could be a new market inefficiency? It's a fascinating question. It seems intuitive that raising labor standards, creating new opportunities for underrepresented folks to break into front offices and building inclusive fan experience would be positive both on the field and creating a lucrative brand. If treating minor leaguers like human beings gets a positive buzz, imagine what would happen if a club announced a commitment to diverse hiring in front offices, scholarships for women and minorities who want to work in baseball, career coaching for guys who don't make the show and want to transition to other jobs, etc. Do you have any insight into whether this specific move was made for pre-R purposes or performance purposes? And do you think we'll see more moves like this across baseball in general? How much cl- collaboration is there between the operations and communications department in a big league club? Um, I, I can't speak a little bit specifically to, to the Astros providing housing to their players. Um, so uh, Pete Putilla is the assistant GM of the Astros and, and heads up the entire player development ha- uh, area of the team has for some years. Um, and Pete, uh, there's no PR purpose to this. Like Pete really cares about players, um, and and has pushed for better things for players for a very long time. Uh, and I'm happy to see the Astros doing something like this and providing um, housing for their players because the housing situation in the minor leagues is an absolute fucking joke on every level. And and you know to be in a position where they're doing that, I think is is very good for baseball. It's good for the players. I hope more teams do this. Um, I hope all teams do this it should not be all players should be provide housing and it shouldn't be part of, you know something that they're responsible for in terms of of both finding managing and or and paying as well um, And so it's a really good thing um i don't think this was done as a pr move i don't i, I it it certainly generated good pr for them and, and i'm sure they tried to make sure that that was the case um which would be the smart move uh, considering the astros but at the same time like i don't think this was done with any sort of pr strategy behind it i think it was in the works for a long time uh and something that would want to be doing as far as like your larger question i think we'll see um you know, the world moves in, in funny places and, and, and I think the way businesses operate often reflects our culture as opposed to defines our culture. Like, I don't, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, whatever, like, high C, when, when, when like high C is, is, is tweeting Black Lives Matter, I don't think they really care about the issues as much as they just want to get good right. PR. Um, and so I, I think. It's it's very much a we'll see. I I do think there are teams who already do have a commitment to diverse hiring in a front office, um, and you maybe not hear about it. I don't think all teams have that commitment, and I'm not even sure most teams have that commitment. But I do know of some teams who are you know where it's an important thing for them. Um, There's still a a super super long way to go. Um, I think it's tough to say it's they're doing well at this point. I don't think they are. I think that there are at least some teams I think are moving in the right direction in a lot of things, including how minor leaguers are, minor leaguers are treated. Um, and I, and I hope I have no optimism for this, but I, I really hope maybe something can get handled in the new CBA that, that helps minor leaguers, even though they're not part of the union. And, and I don't think it's going to happen, but it, it's, it's a, it's a nice thing to wish for. I mean, what do you think about these things, Eric? Big sigh.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question. It runs all over the place.
1: It does. That's what the um, podcast is about. It's why it's three hours long every week.
0: So I agree with you, as far as taking care of minor league players, it's clearly been a horrendous issue. There's something about there's something about the way our culture interacts with sports that has just normalized a bunch of weird behavior. Mm -hmm. Like, it is just weird that we have a draft. Um, And so the way minor leaguers get dealt with, uh, it's bizarre. Like, they're almost, they are loaned out as almost like a carnival act Mm -hmm. uh, to these stadiums that are run by people totally independent of the player's future and ability and... It, so all all of this is sort of strange. And so, yeah, it, it is just the right thing to do for the for the owners to look at. Even if they look at the minor leaguers as their they are their employees, but don't make them any money because they're busy making money for whoever owns the Reading Phillies, uh, you know, and puts on an entertainment show for four hours every night. Right. Um, and so like which, is, only, which is one
1: of the reasons a lot of teams, you know, uh, I think the Braves were really the first to get really aggressive is are buying their own affiliates to get rid of those kind of conflicts. Not that you still want to right. turn them into money-making operations and businesses, but just to erase some of those conflicts we see.
0: Uh, and, right. And the Mets own all their affiliates as well, I believe. Um, which is part of why the Tebow, I mean, you could argue that, that owning your minor league affiliates and then signing Tim Tebow to stick at one of them in uh, Northeast Florida is a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, the, the, is progressivism a market inefficiency meet again, like in a PR sense, maybe it is, but isn't that part of what, if you're going to argue that things like pressure put on via social media can drive real change and here's an instance of it, then, then maybe it is that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the thing that you said that really struck me is how did you say it about the businesses reflecting our culture more than Defining driving it. it? Yeah, I think that the messaging they put out there does that, but I don't think that the mechanics of of the way they operate, like financially, I think that the inverse is the case. I think that that we are sort of subject to this giant machine, like this huge system that has been built and sort of dictates the ebb and flow of our of our culture. But I, but I agree with you that the messaging part of it is just a reflection. It's just what they know we want to see and right. hear that will make us buy their product.
1: Right. Yeah. When, you know, when, when you see like one of those team tweets, that's not actually a tweet, but like an image because it has a whole paragraph in it and says, we're committed to this and committed to that. They're saying that because they feel like they have to.
0: Right. The pink ribbons on your yogurt. <laughs> right. Right. Don't really uh, help breast cancer.
1: They do not. Um, that's it for the email. Again, email us. We love reading your emails. It creates fun conversations. Chinmusic at com. Uh, Eric, I want to catch up with you a little bit. Um, you talked about maybe going to see Max Scherzer. That's tomorrow, I believe.
0: Yeah, the the Nationals are are here to play the D-backs. I've never seen <clears throat> Scherzer in person. And uh, it's a Friday night game, though, so like my sweet spot. I'll blow 125 bucks on a ticket to sit by old plate and watch this spot is not available tomorrow. So, um, that was,
1: that was, that was, you, you answered my question before I asked it, which is like, when you talk about going to see Max Scherzer, you're going to go as a normie. You're going to go buy a ticket and sit and watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I bring slow me with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it meets the specifications allowed in the, in chase field, but yeah, I'll just go buy a seat. um, the way that the seating is set up at Chase Field right now uh, has altered where the scouts sit. And they used to be right in the very... There's like a suite right behind home plate at Chase Field that people go into. Yeah, I know, but, I know
1: what you're talking about.
0: But yeah, then there's like the Roland Heeman scout section. And right now fans are sitting in there and the scouts are one section back. Uh, and so I actually, to buy a ticket, you're sitting... 10 rows or so in front of where the scouts are sitting now, which used to be the inverse. Right. Uh, I don't know if that'll start to change now that some of the seating restrictions here have been relaxed and the need to distance them as much uh, has, has been taken down a degree. Uh, But yeah, I'm, I'm going, I'm sitting behind home plate and I'm not like the kind of dude who will, like, I won't get a beer or two while I'm there, but like, I'll get something to eat. It won't bother me to, to, walk and get like a pork sandwich or something like that while I'm sitting yeah. there
1: and um and you started to think about traveling a little bit to see some things
0: yeah I definitely have I don't I don't know if it's that a trip an optimized trip hasn't uh, presented itself to me or if I'm bad at identifying them after not having done this for like a <laughs> year and a half <laughs> mm-hmm. um So, like, the stars have not really aligned for me to go either do a big SoCal run nor a, like, Northeast trip where I see a bunch of high schoolers tagged with minor league pro stuff in my old stomping grounds based in eastern Pennsylvania where you can drive to, like, a sneaky number of affiliates. Right. uh, And do the MLB Draft League. Like, there just hasn't been a sequence of events that have occurred that would demand I am anywhere for, like, a week or so. Can I go on a tangent real quick? Yeah, do it.
1: Is that draft league going to be a little bit of
0: a bust? For it's in what sense, how many guys need to be, what would, what would constitute a success? Let's define what success is before we have that. Like if you
1: go, a a couple pop up guys, if you go to a draft league game, do you have enough names to write about that would interest our readers?
0: Just a game
1: you gotta, whatever. You spend you spend a weekend there. You watch three. You watch four.
0: I bet it'll be close. But yeah, I would guess so. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like is there a post even in the draft league? Um, That's what I'm like.
1: It's it, for, you know, for people who don't know. Like one of you know, we now have a draft league. You know, from one of the dead minor leagues, and and the premise is cool. The premise is cool as shit, but it feels like so far. Um, players wanting to play in the in the draft league is not what they were anticipating. It's, it's going to be a lower level than that. And it reminds me of in a previous life, uh, a friend and I worked for the NBA on a contract basis at the NBA draft camp in Chicago at Moody Bible College. Um, and we ran the software and scored the games. And um, I could write a book about this thing. It was an incredible experience. It was crazy. But, you know, all of the real guys to do like the lot, not even the lottery, like all these first round picks, no one would show up because there's no, there's no need to, it wasn't going to help them at all. And basically all of these guys were just hoping to be drafted, like hoping to go in the second round. That was all these players were. Um, and I worry that this draft league is going to devolve uh, very, very early um, into this, into the situation where it's all these guys who are just kind of hoping to maybe open someone's eyes for day three, as opposed to us getting, um, better looks as well as you know video and data on, on real dudes.
0: Yeah, I worry that the same fate may befall the combine too. Yeah, absolutely, from what I'm hearing so far. Um you know, again, this is a bunch of the affiliates that used to be in the New York Penn League and mm-hmm. the Trenton Thunder who used to be in the Eastern League, although I don't know how that's gonna work because the AAA team that was supposed to be playing at Buffalo is currently playing at Trenton as the Trenton Thunder. Like yeah. Alec Manoa has just worn a Trenton Thunder for the first two starts of his career, um, and so I don't know with the Blue Jays moving to Buffalo soon, how like these dominoes are all going to line up and fall. Um, if you, I go mean, they there, might
1: they might just end up like the Blue Jays and just be a kind of a constant road team,
0: right? Um, which again is like we couldn't have yeah. thought of something better than this. Um <laughs> there is a Twitter account, okay, the MLB Draft League. It's just at MLB Draft League. And they've been tweeting out the players who are gonna be there, and it is a lot of like super small school. Yeah.
1: Um almost like the the the, the like stat performers.
0: Yeah. Um And so I don't know. It's it's super interesting, at least. I don't know what the level of talent's gonna be. It's weird that uh this is just MLB has taken the places where there used to be minor leaguers that they were paying poorly. And for sure, I do think that in the next CBA that they will end up making something closer to a living wage than previously. And there will just be fewer of them who are getting that. And now a couple of these affiliates are still going to be stocked with players for a certain amount of time. They're Mm. just amateur players who are going to be paid literally nothing right like they've just taken in this dynamic of poorly playing a lot of players and there some of them are going to get paid more now and then a smaller subset of them will be paid nothing and get a short-term opportunity to prove that they should be one of the guys who makes more than before um and so yeah that's just going to be going on it MLB has somehow found a way to be able to end up saying we've paid minor we're paying minor leaguers more now Mm. While, uh, you know, over here with the other hand, they have, they now own affiliates on their own and will be making gate revenue from them and not be paying the players there anything at all. (laughs) And they'll dress it up in this opportunity to be drafted and, you know, like it's a showcase here, this and that as someone coming from Lincoln trails college or wherever. Right. Um, but I think,
1: but like people like you and me, I feel like we've gone from like, Oh, I, you know, we got to go see the draft league too. Eh.
0: It's a thing. That's like an alternative. When I go, it'll be like, uh, right. i want to see Anthony solo but really if he gets banged or, you know, whatever he ends up, his day to throw changes last minute. This is my alternative. Right. Yeah
1: um it's time for a moment of culture so i am going to speak about a movie you have hulu right eric yep have you heard of a movie called border no have you heard of a movie called let the right one in
0: yeah i've seen that
1: the 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 shitty american version or the real one
0: the scandinavian one. yes
1: yes good great movie
0: yeah it's very strong
1: beautiful movie about about children vampires um this is from uh the same writer different director but it's the same writer This is a movie called Border, uh, B-O-R-D-E-R. It is also Scandinavian, Swedish, and um, I don't want to ruin too much of this. I'm just going to tell you the setup, okay? Okay. Uh, We are introduced quickly to a woman. Um, She is a little strange looking. She has a very prominent brow, um, very big, fleshy feature. She almost looks like a, 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 a drawing of a Neanderthal, if you will and um and she works uh at a customs station for the government and people coming in off the boats you know come through here and it becomes clear that um she has a lot of value to the customs people um because she can just tell when someone is hiding something or or anything and it turns out that she uses her sense of smell and she can smell guilt or fear in people and it's and it's all very strange. Like, what's going on with this person? She looks like this. She has this strange ability. And then um, one day, th- through the line comes a person, uh, a, a man, who has the same kind of. He has whatever she has. You know what I mean? He has the same features, facial features. Um, and you're like, oh shit! He's one of he's one whatever she is. He's one of those. Um, and it goes from there. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. It's incredibly well done. It's, it's, uh, it's not quite a comedy at all, but there are certainly funny moments. Um, it's almost at times a science fiction story, um, and a fantasy story. Um, it's really, really good. I, someone recommended it to me and I was like, oh, we should just watch this. And it, we said, and it was transfixing. One of the better movies I've seen all in a long time. And it's actually, I believe, um, Sweden's, uh not nomination but it's what they submitted for their for their foreign film for the Oscar race. I mean it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's really good movie. I can I can't recommend it enough. I think everyone should see it. It's called Border and it is on Hulu.
0: So that's how the Academy Awards work is that foreign a language submits yes. a movie?
1: Yeah, the foreign language ones, yeah.
0: So if there are two dope Swedish movies, they, they only pick get to pick one. one to send? I
1: believe or? that's the case. No. Yes. I I'm not speaking with 100% confidence, but I believe that's the that's how it works.
0: All right. Well that's weird. I didn't know that. Um my my week has been really scattered. Like it's been a lot of baseball for sure. Uh, I have an update on my last moment of culture installation, which was um mm. Joe Frank. Yeah the spoken word. Yeah. Uh so there right around the time that I mentioned it to you on YouTube popped up an account called Joe Frank forever. That started publishing a lot of his stuff. Oh, wow. Um, whereas before he had a a website that his estate ran where you could buy uh, his back catalog, um, or like sign up for a membership to the site and get a certain subset of the stuff for free. Okay. Uh, but a lot of it now is just starting to pour out onto YouTube, like pretty consistently. And, on the YouTube channel recently, someone posted a message and it's his his widow is running this YouTube channel and starting to just dump his stuff onto it. What's it called
1: again to make sure everyone gets it?
0: Joe Frank Forever.
1: Joe Frank Forever on YouTube.
0: And so a lot of the stuff that's come up on there, I've I've never even heard. Like, Oh, wow. That's great. Um, and it's the type of thing where it's not background noise for me. It's a thing I'll put on in the car or just on its own mm-hmm. where it is the thing I can focus on. So it has been publishing on there more uh, at a pace faster than I can like listen to it.
1: Oh, that's great. Um,
0: and a lot of them are, are really interesting. So, so that's an update on that, but I do wonder if his widow is in poor health uh, and that's, what's driving her to start to, to get all this stuff out this. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause yeah, he wasn't, he, he had health problems, but was pretty old. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know what's... um. And I did end up finally getting to see the documentary about him lately, uh, which you can rent on Prime for like four bucks. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, he had a lot of health problems. And one of his good friends from childhood, like they show the two of them together at one point, and they don't even look like they're of the same generation because this guy's health was, was so poor.
1: Mm. Um.
0: So yeah, that's that's an interesting doc to watch if people end up liking his work. But like, I watched the first episode of that Kate Winslet murder show. I kind of like it. I you know, as someone who has family, she nails who,
1: I mean, you got to give her credit for the Philly accent.
0: She does do it pretty well. Um, and yeah, you just got to be in the. I got to be in the right mood to watch about like.
1: It's depressing. It's dark. It, it, it never gets like it. Just yeah. it's, it, every every scene's more depressing than the last. It, Teen it, mom
0: it, murder like never I gets cheery. Yeah, so uh, it does remind me of, like, the David Lynch, like, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I, Eraserhead's all about Philadelphia is this hor- beautiful, horrible place with violence and sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay, so th- this is what this show is, too. <laughs> it definitely is of that uh, spirit. Um, you, so didn't, I only you didn't seen really
1: grow up in a town like that. You were more exurbs, right?
0: I was, yeah, Catasauqua, Pennsylvania has some of these elements. Like there are definitely people who, because it's a small town of like a couple thousand people with a public high school that has, you know, hundred kids per graduating class. Uh, if you hit the game winning shot in that town, then that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like Larry Miller, Larry Miller was that guy. Um he played basketball at Kitasaka High School and was like an amazing high school basketball player. He went to North Carolina and played hoops there and was all-American one year like the list of the you would na- you would know the guys who he was first team all-American with. It's like Pete Maravich and like no oh, wow. uh Elvin Hayes and and Lou like it's those it's four hall of famers and a guy who's from this small uh Pennsylvania town at the time certainly of uh, Catasauqua and then he played in the ABA and now he's the you know he's at the bar a lot <laughs> right 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 um and yeah like for sure has had some personal problems and when you're a big name guy in that town that stuff kind of airs out publicly. Uh, Pat Kelly, who played pro ball uh, for the Yankees. and Yeah, sure.
1: Lil infielder. Uh,
0: he's from my town, too. And he graduated with my uncle. And they were good friends because they both lived in New York together for a while, too, because my uncle acted. And Pat played for the Yankees. And so they went to this small high school together and then were in New York at the same time. And, like, they hung out. They went to college together at Westchester, too. Um and they were buds. And like Pat has had problems too. And so anytime he's back home, if he wants to go to the to the playground for like a summer league basketball game, because like that's a, a nice thing in my town too. And I worked at the summer league while I was a, a teenager. He got paid like 25 bucks under the table yeah, uh, to keep score and stuff and maintain the court. If Pat wants to come down there, like it's weird. And he gets showered with attention, but also like people know that he's had problems mm.
1: um
0: and so some of that I, I sympathize with the lead character of the of the show because yeah it's just got to be weird to like have be forced to deal with this thing and you're sort of in a state of arrest development in everyone's eyes uh, and but deal with like your own real life shit right it's a weird thing so i think the show is, you know you got to be in the mood to watch it but it seems yeah. like it's gonna be a good show
1: yeah i've enjoyed it so far and then i told uh. you
0: before we started i watched a lot of stand-up uh, yes, over
1: the we, last week. we already had our stand-up conversation None of you can listen to it um, We'll be judged We will be judged <laughs> uh, I think we're done here I can't thank you enough for joining me Congratulations on being our the, the first two-time co-host I'm I sure, really appreciate it I'm yeah, sure it'll uh, be three-time again I, I look forward to that as well um, We will be streaming on Twitch tomorrow If you're listening to this right when it comes out Tomorrow being Friday um, I think the plan is noon My time? Central time? um and what do you got coming up in the in the week ahead content wise how you feed Mar- the content machine
0: mariners list then the rangers list which i think is going to be the longest this is definitely like hoisting this boulder of the, the rangers list will will feel really good um mm. their system is really fantastic and so those will be the next two out the door as as i finally wrap up here um and then Oregon State's in town, so in lieu of me going oh. to SoCal, I'll go check in with Oregon right. State again and see Abel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and hopefully, if I do end up seeing Scherzer tomorrow, then it means I'll have missed West Cath, the high school bat um, in the area, who has a playoff game that now I you know fingers crossed that he wins, so I get to see him again. They're playing right. at the uh, at the A's spring training stadium, five A high school state playoffs here, so. I think that's my that's my weekend and um, we'll be in next week's you know the scouting post we do when I have like enough in-person looks to necessitate a post. Excellent.
1: So uh well thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks again to Couch Flambeau for providing the music. Thanks to Alex Coffee for talking to us about the Oakland Stadium situation. We hope you enjoyed and we will talk to you next week. It's
0: Oh, do no.